Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 3 this morning. Mark 3. If you've been walking with us through the book of Mark last week, we uh, came to a place where Jesus withdrew to the sea. And every time Jesus goes to the sea or to the wilderness, he's actually doing battle with the evil one. He's showing himself to be a faithful son of God. More importantly, he's showing himself, or as importantly, he's showing himself to be a perfect savior for you and me. And then you'll remember also in our study that Jesus went up on the mountain and he selected those who would be his disciples. And it was a a clear picture of the fact that God was going to use ordinary people and ordinary events to build his kingdom. And so in the passage that we come to this morning, Mark uh, uses this phrase that what people were saying, and that's really essential. What are people saying about Jesus in his day? Well, there's diverse opinions, uh, and you'll notice that very quickly in our passage. Pick up at chapter 3 in Mark. We'll read verses 20 through 35. And I'll remind you that this is God's word. Then Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. But whatever blasphemies and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. And whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Let's pray for his help. Oh, Father, we recognize that the evil one would love to to cause your word to be stifled and, and distracted. That you are battling in a sense uh, spiritually. There is a a war waging in heavenly places. Uh, But you promised to prevail. And so we pray the the promise that you made in Isaiah, that you would send forth your word, and it would not return void, but you would accomplish the very thing for which you send it. And so we ask now that you would do that, and we pray, Father, that you would use uh, an ordinary, wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point the narrow way to Christ Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. I think that family genetics are kind of uh, funny, if not amazing. I I, I recognize that it's pretty profound that all of my children have hair. (laughs) Of course, their mother has hair. Grateful for that. But you also notice, don't you, that there's things that happen in genetics which are pretty remarkable. 
right? Children inherit a nose that looks like their dad or their mom. They, they inherit the color of their aunt's eyes, or they inherit a, a, a forehead like a, a grandfather. All of that, I think, is, is fascinating. So much so that there's times when a, a grandchild looks like the spitting image of a grandparent 60 years ago. Other times, the genetics are so strong that somebody can say to you, well, you walk exactly like your dad or your mom, or you smile like your mom or your dad. And I think all of that is, is actually striking. You've seen it yourself. To me, what it is is evidence, uh, a, a subtle proof that God himself is the one who's involved in all of this intricate details of human beings. So the passing of traits is physical, but you recognize sometimes it's more than physical. Uh, It can be something more, like you inherit the wit of your father or your mother, or you inherit a strong work ethic from a father or mother. So you got physical traits, but there's a sense in which you also have character traits, which you inherit somehow through bloodline. And though it is not through bloodline, and though it is not through genetics, the Bible says that this very same thing happens spiritually as well. And what I mean is that when God draws you to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he places his Holy Spirit within you, and it's from that Spirit who lives in you that you begin to inherit traits of God the Father himself. In fact, you start to bear a family resemblance to the Father and to Jesus Christ, who's not ashamed to call you his brother. And I suspect there's some of you who would hear this and you would say, well, I don't know where my family resemblance is. I've been a believer for a long time. I'm not yet sure that I I look anything more like Christ than I did at the beginning. That's actually the reason we're studying the gospel of Mark. Because the way that you grow to look more like Christ is you really come to know the real Jesus of the Bible. Not the Jesus of your distant memory. Not the Jesus of your imagination, not the Jesus that somebody else told you about. In fact, the only Jesus who can and will transform you is the Jesus of the Bible itself, the real Christ of the, of the Scriptures. And so here Jesus speaks in this passage about blasphemy and brotherhood, and one is a warning and the other is a, a comfort. And so the text teaches this in whole. If you look to Christ as Lord, you learn to walk like your brother, and so Here we'll encounter an accusation which is directed toward Jesus. Secondly, an assertion which is made by Jesus. And then third, an answer given to those who seek Jesus. So we start with this accusation that is listed toward Jesus. Having picked his disciples, Jesus goes home, the text says, which probably means back to Capernaum. And no sooner does he arrive in Capernaum that a crowd gathers at the house where he's staying, and he can't even eat a meal without interruption. Jesus's family, who's up in Nazareth, gets word of this. No doubt they're very concerned for his well-being. Verse 21 says, they went out to seize him, which is actually a very severe phrase. It literally means to arrest him. To, to tie him up, that's how serious they think the issue is. That they are worried that they need to protect Jesus from himself. And here's something interesting that Mark does. Very early on in Jesus' ministry, he starts telling us what people are saying about Jesus. He highlights it in verse 21 and 22 with that phrase, were saying. 
In other words, these are the accusations that people made about him. Two of them immediately. Verse 21, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. Accusation number one, Jesus is a madman. That is, he has lost his mind or he is a lunatic. On the other hand, the scribes who came down to Jerusalem, verse 22, were saying he's possessed by Beelzebul. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So accusation number two, no, Jesus is not crazy. He's evil. He's in league with the devil. He's a deliberate liar. He's trying to deceive other people. And so you hear these two options and you go, how in the world did they arrive at these two options? Well, think about this personally. These are the things that Jesus has said to this point. He's declared himself to be the son of man. Which means he was actually looking at the book of Daniel and he was saying, remember when Daniel was talking about a Messiah-like figure? That's me. And then he says, I'm also the Lord of the Sabbath. Which means I was present with God when the Lord created the Sabbath itself and gave you an opportunity to rest. He's saying, I was there with God before it all began. He's also declared himself to be capable of forgiving sins. He even went so far as to insinuate that every sin that's ever been committed was actually committed against him personally. And yet he has the right to forgive sins. How would anybody presume that he's a madman? How would anybody presume that he's a liar? Because these are exactly what you would come up with too. If you knew someone who was declaring these exact same things, that's what you do. That's what people think about Charles Manson. That's what people think about Jim Jones. Both men who claimed to be divine. They were either crazy or evil or both. That's why it's not surprising that these are the two options. The accusations that are repeated among those who saw and heard Jesus. Now, you'll recognize if you're a careful reader over the last 50 years or so, you'll recognize that you might have heard something of what I'm going to describe. I'm pulling from this from other pastors and writers who've spoken before me. Some people in Jesus' day said that he's crazy. You do not really hear that anymore now. And I suspect this is why you don't. He is not the only person in human history to declare and claim himself to be God. But he is the only person in human history who claimed divinity and then also created and sustained a worldwide movement that still exists 2,000 years later. He's the only one who was supposedly a madman and his message has circled the globe multiple times. If I was to use my earlier examples, Charles Manson, Jim Jones, they're actually indicative of how this has usually ended in human history. And here's what I mean. A person who is a lunatic is capable of drawing a crowd, whether through coercion or manipulation, whatever. They're often capable in a generation of getting a following, and it's usually of particularly needy or particularly gullible people. And they will follow for a season. But it's always localized and it's always small. And human history knows of no other person who was out of his mind and yet continues to attract followers for generations and generations and generations. And ironically, after the resurrection, these same brothers who believed that Jesus was a lunatic in his life, the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 4, they're following Jesus. They don't think he's a lunatic anymore after the resurrection. Now, for sure, there 
are still some who, like the scribes in Jesus' day, might say that he was a liar. That is an evil, deceptive person. Well, here's the problem with that. Jesus makes these extraordinary claims that catch on in an absolutely impossible place. Eastern religions, even today, speak about God as a force, as if he's everywhere and in everything. Whereas Western religions, and I'm talking about like if you think of Greek and Roman mythology, they tended to believe in gods who were flawed. They were kind of human-like characters, and they would come down. They would get themselves into mischief, and, and all of the tales about them are always fanciful. Well, my point is that Jesus' message could have caught on in Eastern culture, or it could have caught on in Western culture, but it would never catch on among the Jews. Why? Because these are the only people on the face of the earth who believe in a single creator God who is so holy and so transcendent and so distant that to a Jew, the thought of that holy transcendent God coming down and becoming a man and living on earth is not only repugnant, it's impossible. And yet, oddly, all of Jesus' followers at the beginning are Jews. And that is because those who saw his ministry had to make sense of an extraordinary, radical set of claims. But also they had to make sense of these miracles that went along with it. But more than that, even the miracles and then compassion and kindness and love and gentleness that even his enemies couldn't make sense of. So those who said that he was an evil liar were consistently dumbfounded with this problem. He cares for the poor. He cares for the weak. He cares for the marginalized. People who are evil don't do that. If you're out for your own glory, you have no interest in those who can do nothing for you. And yet those who knew him the best saw so much in his life and in his death and in his resurrection that they were convinced, no, he is not a liar, he's not a lunatic, he is the Lord God himself. And then everywhere on the pages of the Bible, those are actually the only three options, the only three ways that people thought about Jesus. Not on the pages of the scripture, there's a fourth option which is really only about 150 years old. It's an option that really you should think of like the, kind of like the Da Vinci Code, uh, whether the book or the movie. And that is this, that the New Testament Gospels are legends. They're written later by those who wanted to create a faith out of Jesus' teaching. And according to this idea, Jesus is not a liar. He's not a lunatic because of all of the things that I mentioned. But he is certainly not the Lord because we don't want to have to contend with what the implications of that might be for us. And so they say, well, the New Testament is just legend. They say you can't trust the Gospels. They are inaccurate. It's an inaccurate picture of who Jesus was. And so here's the conclusion they come to. In fact, Jesus was historical. He was just simply a profound teacher of love and peace or something like that. Again, I'm borrowing from others on the subject, C.S. Lewis, and many people wrote before him on this same thing. There's three problems with this claim that the Gospels are a legend. Number one, the Gospels are written far too early to be legends. Legends are always formulated over time. In fact, it's impossible to create a legend if you've got eyewitnesses who could dispute what's being said about it. 
All the Gospels are actually written within the lifetime and the lifespan of the eyewitnesses, which is why the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's writing basically 15 or 20 years after the resurrection. And he says, the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 eyewitnesses. And then he turns to those who would be fact checkers, and he says, you should go ask some of them, because most of them are still alive. You'd never say that if you and your buddies created a legend. The second reason that this could not be a legend is that the stories are so radically counterproductive. Like if you're going to become the founder of a new religion, a new movement, why would Peter and James and John allow these ridiculously embarrassing stories to be told about themselves? Yeah, on the night in which he was betrayed, I was standing at a campfire. And this very scary, intimidating 10-year-old slave girl looked at me and said, you were with Jesus, weren't you? And then I said, no. And I ran away crying. Of course, all those stories are included because they really did happen. And in fact, they prove not only that the stories are not edited, they're not edited at all. A third reason these could not possibly be legends is because the genre that the Bible is written in literally did not exist until the early 1800s. C.S. Lewis, of course, who was a literature professor at Oxford, points out, that it is not until the early 1800s with the creation of modern fiction literature that people included details in their stories that had absolutely nothing to add to the stories. In a few weeks, we'll get to Mark chapter 4, verse 38. Jesus is going to calm the waters of the storm. Mark thinks it's important to tell us that Jesus was in the front of the boat laying on a cushion, which adds absolutely nothing to the story except somebody really saw him laying on a cushion. It's actually making a distinct difference between an eyewitness testimony and fiction because no one ever wrote that way before the modern times. Ancient writers of fiction didn't do anything like this. So C.S. Lewis is not the first person to say it. I've said that. But he might be the one who said it most famously. Here's his quote. In Mere Christianity, Lewis says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. I'm not willing to accept his claim to be God. This is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of one who thinks he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. If you look to Christ as Lord, you're going to begin to learn to walk like your brother. So we've addressed these false accusations. 
Now let's look at the assertion that Jesus makes. It's really, in essence, verse 23 through 28. But now the religious leaders have been forced, really, to come up with an answer for why Jesus is is capable of doing the kinds of things that he does as, as crowds pour to him. This is what they've said. Yeah, he does something supernatural, but it's being done through the power of Satan. And so Jesus says, I'll answer that in two ways. First, on a logical level, and then on a more personal level. In other words, with an assertion of who I really am, verse 27. So he begins with a parable. It's really a metaphor to dismantle the absurdity of the claim. Verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? How could a kingdom go to war against itself? Wouldn't that, in, in essence, be self-defeating? How can a house or a family, that's what he means by house, fight against itself? Because a victory for the family would mean an end to the family. So in one sense, Jesus says, if your statement is a fact, then we should be seeing evidence of Satan becoming weaker and weaker. But look around. Demon possession Twisted, broken bodies? Anything about these diseases or people crowding to me for help? Does anything about that indicate that Satan is weak? That he's about to self-destruct? The very fact that people are pouring to Jesus for help says this is a fallacy. And then Jesus turns to the far more serious charge that he is demon-possessed. That the works he does come from the power of Satan. Look at verse 27. He says, here's what's really happening. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And so Jesus is talking about the devil like he's a strong man who proves his power by enslaving humankind to sin. Satan goes forth. He overpowers men and women. He possesses them. He brings death and disease into God's once perfect, flawless world. And if Satan would ever be bound, it would take a stronger man than him to do it. Jesus says, that's who I am. That's the assertion that Jesus makes. I'm not a liar. I'm not a lunatic. I'm not a great moral teacher. I'm the Christ, the Lord God Almighty. And by my incarnation, I have broken down Satan's door. My father sent me as his perfect son to bind the evil one. That's actually what's happening right before your eyes. Brothers and sisters in Christ, do you see... What a message of hope and confidence verse 27 is for you. It was when Jesus said it. It is even more hopeful, even more encouraging this side of the cross. Because not only did Jesus kick open Satan's door and bind him by his own obedience, he publicly takes Satan to the cross and he defeats him personally. And he will finally come and defeat him again when he returns in glory. Where sin and suffering are forever defeated. The Apostle Paul recognizes all of this imagery. And he picks it up in Colossians chapter 2 verse 15. He says that God canceled the record of debt that sin had against you. God actually nailed it to the cross himself with Jesus. And then he says this, 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Every scholar of the book of Colossians says Paul pictures a king, an emperor, who conquers and vanquishes his foe and then strolls through town with the defeated dragged behind the train. That is what King Jesus has done. Why did Jesus then feel the need to bring up the concept of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? What does this have to do with the analogy of binding the strong man? It has to do with who Jesus really is. What does verse 30 say? They were saying he has an unclean spirit. And he says, no. No, I'm the stronger man. I'm the champion whom God sent because I don't possess an evil spirit. I possess the spirit of God. You and I don't use the term blasphemy in our modern language. But the scribes knew it well. In fact, they would have defined it in their own words. They would have said it's defiant hostility toward God. It's speech that denies God's power and majesty. And I think that Jesus may be quoting them very loosely when he says in verse 28, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And some of you, I suspect, have wondered, maybe I did that that's not what the text says they're giving credit to Satan for God's power God's kingdom is on display and demons are expelled and they deny the power and the greatness of God and these are the men who've spent their entire lives studying the scriptures it was their responsibility to be aware of God's redeeming work and yet when the power of God is on display they miss it That's why Jesus says you are in danger of profaning God's name. You consciously, deliberately reject the saving power and grace of God. Some Christians, I guess, have misread this, have heard it taught wrongly, and they have been driven to despair. They hone in on verse 29, and they miss all the comfort of verse 27 and 28. God will forgive any and all kinds of sin for those who come in humble repentance, tender heart. Those who come to Jesus actually get forgiveness. It's that simple. And I suspect the scribes would warn us from the grave. It was actually our knowledge of Scripture that condemned us. We knew better. We heard it. We rejected it thinking, well, I don't, I don't need Jesus. One of my seminary professors who's kind of considered an expert in the book of Mark, he says it this way, only the man who sets himself against forgiveness is excluded from forgiveness. If you run away from Jesus, then you run away from your only hope. Paul Tripp says it this way, if you reject the means of forgiveness, there will be no forgiveness. That's all it means. He's talking about a conscious, deliberate, continued rejection of the saving power and grace of God delivered through Jesus. Here's the deal. Verse 28 is a promise. You can't sin bigger than God's willingness to forgive. And then verse 29 is the other side of the coin. It's a warning. 
your sins are so big that you can't be saved unless you come to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you look to Christ as Lord, you learn to walk like your brother. So you have accusations and assertion. And finally, we're going to close with an answer for those who seek Jesus. What began in verse 20, that is his family coming from Nazareth down to Capernaum, picks up in verse 31. Jesus' mother and his brothers arrive outside the house. And in Old Testament law, Jesus knows family is a big deal. Mark chapter 7, Jesus is going to affirm the importance of love and honor and care for family. But here he's going to use the fact that his family calls to him as an opportunity to teach again on the same point. What does it mean to come to Jesus? Like what's involved in discipleship? Well, Jesus says it is more than forgiveness of sins. It's a new family. You can almost imagine the message being passed through the crowds. Jesus can't see them out there. Your mother, your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It is like every other occasion when Jesus teaches. You and I need to visualize the fact that his disciples literally are sitting at his feet. And so Jesus isn't looking at the, the crowds in general and saying, hey, this is all my real family, as if to, to reject his own family. No, he's looking at his disciples. And he says, this is the family of God. Jesus says, I came to create an entirely new community of faith. And though he looks at the 12, don't you see also that he's looking beyond the 12? To anyone who comes and seeks forgiveness of sins, but who is also willing to embrace obedience and the enjoyment of what it means to be a part of the family, to wear the mark of Christ. That's why this isn't just about coming to Jesus it's about learning to walk like Jesus. The forgiveness of your sins through the blood of Christ is what makes you a member. It's what identifies you as part of the family of God. But Christ says it's also learning the will and the ways of your Father that makes you my disciple. To be sure, Mark chapter 3 answers the question of identity. And some of you need to hear this very carefully. Am I bound in the house of Satan? Am I chained there that I must sin in this same way again and again and again for the rest of my life? And some of you live and think that way. But in Christ, that's not who you are. Jesus has plundered Satan's house by his death and resurrection. And when he kicks down Satan's door, he frees captives and he brings them home. That's why Hebrews 2 says, Jesus is not at all ashamed to call the likes of you and me brothers, sisters. Is Christ your Savior? Is Christ your only hope? then you must live as one who is sitting at the feet of Jesus. He is not only your Savior. You are His disciple. 
You rest assured that by faith in Christ, you are a son and daughter of the living God. You are a brother or sister of Jesus, but God did not bring you home in Christ so that you'd continue to live as a person who is bound in Satan's house. He didn't call you his son so that you'd live like an orphan. Look at Jesus. Learn what it means to live as a member of his family. If you look to Christ as Lord, you learn to walk like your brother. And you start to bear the family resemblance. Genetics are funny. Spiritual genetics are even more profound. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask that having sent forth your word, you would cause it to land in the hearts of your people that you would accomplish from it precisely what you intend to accomplish. We glorify your name and exalt your name for being the kind of God who speaks and gives your word. Teach us to embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen.